I love child dedication Sundays, don't you? Uh, I mean, it's fun, right? Like to see all these kids, many of which we prayed for, one of which, can you guess which one? The redhead, the redheaded kid is my nephew. Um, there's just, it's, there's excitement when we have these child, because there's so much hope for their future and there's so much hope for what God's going to do in their lives. And parents make, uh, what we do in these dedication ceremonies is we make a vow that we're going to parent these children. We're going to teach these children to know and love God and to love his church. And as a church, we vow to the families that we're going to care and teach these children to know and love God so that they'll grow up to know Jesus and love the church. And so there's a lot of excitement there. There's a lot of hope for the future. But I also confess um, that I also feel a little bit of anxiety on days like this um, because I recognize that this vision that we have for these kids to grow up to love and know and follow Jesus, um, I recognize that these kids are increasingly growing up in a world where following Jesus is less and less common. And I know that for these kids, following Jesus will come at a cost, a cost that they may have to pay, a price they may have to pay for their faith that we haven't had to. And uh, so I feel a little bit of anxiety with that because in our desire to teach them to know and to love God, I recognize that we're not the only voice speaking into their lives. There are a million voices all over the world that are speaking into their lives that contradict the things that we say and we teach about the things of God. And we must be prepared as a church and as parents to teach our children that the gospel is true and that it actually matters for their life. You know, we live at a time in history here in America where the number of Christians is supposedly, statistics say, rapidly declining. This is not true globally. Um, and globally, the Christianity is blowing up. It's exploding. But in the West, and in particular in the United States, um, there is a decline in the number of people who claim uh, to be followers of Jesus. And not only that, there is increasing apathy toward Christianity and increasing hostility at times toward the way of Jesus. And so that's going on in the culture. Our, our kids are hearing that, feeling that. But also within the church, there's something going on where it seems that within kind of the wider Christian community, some many bedrock Christian beliefs of Christian theology are being called into question. And you may have heard stories of deconstruction or deconversion. Those things are common. There are many people that are walking away from the faith. There's many people that are sort of burning the bridges as they leave. And it leaves many of us feeling confused because we live in a world now that feels either apathetic at best or hostile at worst to the things that we say we believe. And it leaves us feeling confused. Like, and we ask ourselves, we go, is, is what I believe really true? And does it really make a difference. What difference does it make in my life? What difference does it make in my children's lives? They're going to hear all these things. And how can I tell them that the gospel is true and that it actually matters for their life? And so if we're going to honor our kids and honor the vows we just made to them, and if we ourselves are going to thrive in today's world, we need to consider these questions. And the questions are, is the gospel really true? And what difference does it make? You know, for the last several weeks, we've been studying the letter of 1 John. And at the time that John wrote this letter, Christians were facing a very similar struggle that we're facing today. This letter, you have to understand, this is one of the later letters in the New Testament. It was written many years after Jesus' death and resurrection. John, at the time of writing this, was most likely the last living apostle. And so John was an old man. 
And he was trying to pass down the faith to the next generation. But at this time, the church was getting further and further away from the time of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And older leaders, mean think eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, apostles, they were dying out and new leadership was coming up in the church. And many of these leaders, for various reasons, were beginning to question ideas and beliefs and events that had previously been understood to be settled by the church. And so the issues of Jesus' deity and Jesus' humanity were now being called into question at this time in history. Questions of, did, what did Jesus actually accomplish on the cross? What did, it, what did he act, Can we really know that we're saved? Can we really know that we have eternal life in Christ? So at this moment in history, there were core convictions of the early church and of the apostles that were being called into question by some of these new leaders. And it was causing many sincere believers to doubt their faith. And as they were beginning to doubt their faith, it was beginning to have all sorts of other ripple effects as well. There was division within the church because there were all these hostile debates about what they believe. Christians, as they were doubting their faith, they were doubting, uh, they, they, were, they were losing their assurance of the eternal life. And so they, were, they, were, they, were, uh, they, they weren't sure if they were really saved. And then in, in light of all their doubt, they were even beginning to question the commands of Jesus. And they were beginning to give in to temptation. And so there was sin, there was disunity, there was all these sorts of things going on in the church, and it was causing these believers to fall away, and people were asking, is the gospel really true, and does it make a difference? And John writes the letter of 1 John to say, yes, it's true, and yes, it makes all the difference. This is the first thing John tells us. He says, the gospel is really true. If you remember in the beginning of this letter, in chapter 1, verse 1, uh, John says, God became a man, and I was there. I knew him. I saw him. It's true. John begins this letter by saying, I was an eyewitness. I knew Jesus. I saw Jesus. I was there when he healed the sick. I was there when he preached the Sermon on the Mount. I was there when he fed the 5,000. I was there when uh, he was arrested. I was there when he was unjustly tried. I was there when he was uh, unjustly sentenced to death. I was there when he was beaten with whips. I was there when he had a crown of thorns placed on his head. I was there when he was crucified. I was there when his body came off the cross. I was there when it was placed in the tomb. And I was there when Jesus got up out of the grave. I knew the resurrected Jesus, John says. He cooked breakfast for me, John says, John 21. And John says, and... I knew him, and I'm here to tell you that it's really true. Jesus himself has sent me into the world to tell you that, yes, it is true. I am a credible eyewitness. But that was what John says in chapter 1, and now at the end of this letter, John comes back, and he's like, I'm going to tell you again, it's true, but listen, he does something different this time. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, he says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, and whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar." Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. And you're like, that's a little confusing. What, <laughs> what did he just say? 
water, blood, spirit. What is John talking about? Um, I read one author this week that sort of helped me kind of put this, uh, make sense of this passage. He said, in the beginning of the letter, John is arguing for the truth of the gospel as an eyewitness. He says, it's true because I was there. I saw it. But here on the back end of the letter, John's sort of taking a different approach. Instead of being the eyewitness, John is taking the role of the attorney arguing his case. And to do this, he's saying, I'm calling three witnesses to the stand. For there are three that testify, he says, water, blood, and spirit. And you're like, I still don't know what that means. Imagine a courtroom for a moment. And John the Apostle stands up. He says, look, I've already told you that I saw this. I'm an eyewitness. I saw the resurrected Jesus. He really died and he really rose from the grave. But I'm not the only one. And I want to argue to the jury and to the public that Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. And so the first witness I want to call to the stand is water. And everybody goes, water is coming to the stand? And water comes and takes the stand. And John says, water, do you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth? He says, water says, I do. John says, water, where are you from? And water says, I'm from the Jordan River, where John the Baptist used to baptize many years ago. And John says, well, water, were you there the day that Jesus of Nazareth was baptized? And water says, yes, yes, I was. Well, tell us what you experienced. And water says, well, I was flowing one day. And then John the Baptist was baptizing people. And then this man, Jesus, steps into the water and he begins walking deep in to the waters and he gets waist deep. And he approaches John the Baptist and says he'd like to be baptized. And John says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to baptize you. But Jesus insisted. And so John the Baptist took Jesus and he, he, he immersed him under the water and he brought him up out of the water. And the craziest thing happened. When Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens literally opened up and a dove descended down on Jesus. And then a booming voice from the heavens cried out, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so John says, you experienced this. Water says, yes. He said, so are you testifying to the court today that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the son of the living God? And water says, absolutely I am. I saw it with my own eyes. And John says, thank you, water. No further questions. I'd like to call my second witness to the stand. I call the blood of Jesus shed on the cross of Calvary to the stand. And everybody starts feeling uncomfortable. Like, What's this going to be like? The blood, you know? Well, blood comes up to the stand and John says, blood, you were there the day that Jesus was crucified, correct? And blood says, yes, I was. And I can testify that I was at his trial before Pilate. And I was there when Jesus was scourged with whips and it left his back a bloody mess. I was scattered all over his flesh. And then they placed a crown of thorns on his head as they pressed it down and I began to stream down his face. And then they took rusty nails and nailed them into his hands and feet. And I began to cover him as I poured out of his body. And the courtroom was hushed. And after a long silence, John speaks up and says, can you confirm that Jesus actually died on the cross? And the blood says, yes, I can verify that he actually died. As the blood of Jesus, I bear testimony that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And John says, thank you, blood. No further questions. You can step down. And then John calls the Holy Spirit to the stand and says, do you swear to tell the truth? All is yes, yes, yes. 
Were you present during the earthly ministry of Jesus? John asked the Spirit. The Spirit says, yes, I was present at his birth. I was also present at his baptism. I was present during his earthly life. I was present at his crucifixion. I was present at his resurrection, and I was there at his ascension. And I was present with him for all eternity past before the incarnation, and I will be present with him as the third member of the Trinity for all of eternity. And John says, is your testimony that he is indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God? And the Holy Spirit cries out, yes, I bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then John turns to the public, turns to the jury, and says, you, in verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is far greater, for this is the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life And this life is in his son. John says, I was there. You can trust me. It really happened. And John says, you can trust the water of Jesus' baptism. And you can trust the blood of Christ that was poured out for him for the sins of many. And you can trust the spirit who confirms that Jesus is indeed the son of the living God. That he is the Messiah. The gospel really is true. I was there. The spirit was there. The water and the blood say so. And now before we move on to the next point, I want to simply say that John also is making a point that he was a trustworthy source. You know, John was with Jesus when Jesus, you know, said the Holy Spirit's going to come and I'm going to send you into the world and you're going to tell the world that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God. And John, this was his mission in life. And you know, as an old man, it had to grieve him to tears when he saw the church being led astray by false teachers. And John is going, uh, not only was he there with Jesus, but he's been pastoring these people for many decades. And when he sees these new leaders turning them astray and putting doubts in their minds, there's a sadness where he's going, have I not proven myself trustworthy? Have I not proven myself to be a trustworthy pastor? Why are you believing the lies of these teachers? Why are you so quick to believe them and doubt the truth I've given to you? And I think about these kids that were just up here and all these smiling parents and family members. And there's a story that we as parents who are followers of Jesus get get to tell our kids. It's that daughter, son, God has saved me. This is who your dad used to be. This is who your mother used to be. But God in his grace has saved us. And we want you to know him like we know him. And this is what we try to pass down to our kids. And why do we want to pass it down? Because we know what God has done for us. And we love our children. And we want our children to experience this life. And what's so sad is when our children run astray and start listening to all these other voices that don't care about them, telling them to doubt what they've been handed down. And listen, there is something beautiful about the faith handed down from grandparents to parents and to children. And John says, why are you so quickly abandoning what I've said to you by these new false teachers? And here's what I'm trying to say. For teenagers in this room, those TikTok influencers that are trying to feed you all, the algorithms trying to feed you all sorts of junk and doubts about what your parents have been trying to tell you. And for the rest of us, Facebook and all the weird memes and all the junk on cable news that tries to turn our hearts away from the things of God. Why are you listening to those things? John's saying, don't go chasing those idols. I'm trustworthy. Listen to what I have to say. It's all true. This is what John is saying. So John, the beloved apostle who can be trusted, says, it's true, you can trust me. But the next question is, okay, if the gospel's true, what difference does it make? 
Well, there's a couple things that John tells us. The first is that the gospel, this is the difference the gospel makes. The gospel assures us of eternal life. In verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I I mentioned that I spent quite a bit of time this week at the hospital uh, with a church member who is facing death. And I'm a young man. What do you say, you know? What do you say in the ER to somebody who's facing death? I didn't know what to say Tuesday night. So I just opened my, part, my Bible to the parts where it talks about heaven. And we just read about Jesus wiping away every tear. And the old passing away and the new coming. And listen, we were still facing death in that room. But the family, myself, there was confidence that started to rise in our hearts because we know that there is eternal life. And that whatever we may lose in this life, it is gained in the next. And that we don't have to fear death because we know that death has been defeated. See, the promise of eternal life is one of the greatest gifts of the gospel. That on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. This is propitiation. He paid the penalty of our sins. And we no longer now face the judgment of God on our sin because Jesus faced it for us. And we are now, because of Jesus' life and his righteousness, now we are invited into the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. Our admission into the kingdom of heaven is secured by the blood of Jesus. This is what propitiation means. And because we have the promise of eternal life, this means that we can have an abundant life today. It means that we can endure suffering with hope. It means we don't have to fear death because we know that death does not have the last word over those who are in Christ But here's the good news about eternal life. Eternal life is not just a promise for one day out there. Eternal life is a promise for today as well. Eternal life doesn't begin when you die or when Jesus returns. Eternal life begins the day that Jesus makes you new. And we can be courageous today. We can take risks today. We can give extravagantly today because we know that this world is not all there is and we don't have to store up treasures on this earth and we don't have to play it safe because we know that eternity awaits us. We don't have to fear missing out. We don't have to fear losing out. We don't even have to fear being taken advantage of. So that means that we can charge ahead and love people who might take advantage of us. We can make ourselves vulnerable and we can take risks in the kingdom of God because we know that there's nothing that can happen in this life that will take us away from the eternity that awaits us. One of the criticisms that's often leveled at Christians is that we talk so much about heaven that we don't care that much about what's happening on earth. You've heard people say this. Christians are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. Well, I raise you C.S. Lewis, okay? C.S. Lewis said, but if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those that thought the most of the next And C.S. Lewis actually tells a story in his Chronicles of Narnia, has a character in the Chronicles of Narnia that shares this story. If you've read Chronicles of Narnia, there's a little mouse. I know in New York we hate mice, but this is a good mouse. His name is Reepicheep. He's like this big, and he's a swordsman, and he fights dragons, and he's not afraid of anybody. He's courageous, and he's kind, and he's gracious. Now, how can this little mouse, this little thing that can so easily be squashed by a centaur or a minotaur in Narnia, how can he be so courageous? How can he be so loving when he could be taken advantage of so easily? He does this because if you've ever read the story, you know that his whole deal 
is he just wants to get to Aslan's country. That's all he talks about. He's on a voyage to get to Aslan's country, which is, Narnia is an allegory. It's heaven, and Aslan is God. And he just wants to get to, he talks about Aslan's country all the time to the point where it annoys people. They're like, why do you talk so much about Aslan? He's like, I, it's all he can talk about. All he could think about was the eternity that awaited him in the presence of the great king, Aslan the lion. And by thinking about the next life, it gave him courage in the present one. And this is the truth of Christianity, that if we have the assurance of eternal life, that ought to give us a whole lot of courage in this one, in this life. The gospel not only assures us of eternal life, it assures us that God hears our prayers. This is one of the great questions that people ask, isn't it? One, what do we, can we know what happens to us after we die? The gospel says, yes, there's eternal life in heaven with Christ. And then another question we often ask is, does anybody hear me when I pray? And John says, yes, God hears you when you pray. The gospel assures you that you can be confident in your prayer because God hears your prayers. He says in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Pastor Kyle preached a great message a few weeks ago on adoption. And John mentions in this letter, he says, not only did the cross of Christ, uh, did you, on the cross was Jesus our, the propitiation for our sins, not only did he pay the penalty of our sins, but by dying on the cross, he paid the adoption fees for God the Father to adopt us into his family. One of the, the implications of the gospel and of the cross and the resurrection is that we are now adopted by God. We are his children. We're given a new family. We are God's children. And if you really grasp this truth, my goodness, if we really understood and wrapped our minds around the truth that God is our Father, and that we are his sons and daughters. That would give us such confidence in prayer, wouldn't it? Man, we would stop praying these wimpy prayers that we pray, wouldn't we? We would pray with such confidence. And we certainly wouldn't approach him hesitantly. Oh man, I've done a lot of bad things this week. I should, maybe God, maybe he'll hear my prayers. Maybe he won't. I don't know. Maybe he's mad at me. But if you believe that you are a child of God, boy, you would approach him with such confidence. There's a photo that I love of John F. Kennedy uh, in, in the Oval Office. That is the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world, in the most powerful office in the world, the Oval Office, and his children are dancing. Imagine for a moment who all has sat in that room. Celebrities dignitaries, world leaders, influencers have stepped into that room. And when they stepped into that room with John F. Kennedy on the other side of that desk, they walked in with fear. They walked in with hesitation. They walked in with insecurity, wondering what this powerful man might think of them. And they're probably paying attention to what they're wearing. And they're paying attention to how they smell. They're paying attention to, am I making a good impression? Do my socks match? Does he like me? Does he like what I'm saying? And they're just, there's constant insecurity when you're in the presence of such power. But then his kids come into the Oval Office. They know their dad's the president. But he's their dad. And him being their father trumps him being the all-powerful. And they know he's powerful. They know he can make big decisions. But they also know he's a loving father who loves them. And so they're free to dance and free to play. And so many of us view God 
in terms of his power. And we are afraid to approach him with confidence. But the Bible calls us sons and daughters and the scriptures say that we can, we can enter into the presence of God because Jesus has torn down that wall that, divide, that separates us between God the Father. And so John, he says this ought to give us confidence to pray, but he also says this. He says, if you pray according to his will, he'll give you everything you ask for. And you're like, yes, I love that. New Lexus, let's go. <clears throat> I'm not a perfect father, but I think I'm a good father. My kids ask me for things all the time. Last night, my daughter asked me for a fruit roll-up right before bedtime. I said, no, sweetheart, that's a terrible idea. Your grandfather is a dentist. You cannot do this. Sometimes my kids ask me for toys, and I go, kids, this isn't going to move the needle on your happiness at all. You don't need it. There are times where I don't answer my children's requests because it doesn't align with my desire for their lives. But I have values for my children that when they make requests that align with my values for them, I become the most generous gift-giving dad of all time. Let me tell you an example. One of the things, core values in my family, in, in, our, in our household, with me as a father and my wife, is we love the arts. And so our kids, anything creative, anything they ask for, we're going to give it to them. So if they say, Dad, I need art supplies. I want to write a book. You know, we're like, let's go to the, the art supply store. We're going to get you what you want. A couple weeks ago, I was playing my guitar. My daughter, Edith, she started picking on my guitar. And she was like, I really want to take guitar lessons. And I wish I had my own guitar. And I was like, oh, yeah, we're going to get the best guitar teacher that New York City has to offer. I don't care what it costs. And I'm going to get you the nicest guitar we can afford. Because why? I value that. I want my children to value creativity. And so when they ask for something that aligns with that, like you cannot put a plug on my generosity. I'm like, I'm, I don't care how much it is. I'm giving it to you. And this is the same thing with God. Listen, sometimes we're going to pray things and God's going to go, you don't, you don't even know what you're asking for. But when we pray according to his will, the gospel assures us that he loves to say yes. So the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And let me promise you, when you ask God, God, will you give me self-control? Will you give me more patience? Will you give me more love and more joy? He will lavishly give it to you. The scriptures say that when you ask for wisdom, God gives it. There are things that when we ask for them according to his will, God will give, us, give it to us. So he answers your prayers with generosity. The gospel assures us not only that God hears our prayers, but that he answers them as well. The gospel, finally, it assures us that we can overcome our sin. You know, throughout this study of 1 John, you know, John's talked a lot about obedience and holiness and sin and resisting the temptation to sin and this is in our groups. We've been studying 1 John and in our prayer meetings and one-on-one -on -one conversations. Many people have expressed that they've been taking this to heart. And over the last several weeks, we've had people share in groups and prayer meetings and in one-on-ones. They're like, I'm struggling with this thing and I want to overcome it. Addictions, desires, temptations that I'm trying to overcome. And we've been praying together as a church for individuals that they would have the strength to overcome these temptations in their lives. And one, as we just said, God delights in answering that prayer. But second, John doesn't just say God answers that prayer. God on the cross has shown us that you already have victory. You just need to walk in it. 
See, the final words of this letter, these are the last paragraph. John gives us an encouragement to say, you can overcome sin in your life because Jesus has already overcome it. And it may feel like Satan and temptation are so powerful and you may feel so powerless to say no and you may feel so powerless to resist the lies and the lures of the enemy. But I want you to know, John says, Jesus has triumphed over them. They've been defeated. This is what he says in verse 18. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who has been born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, John ends his letter with a command. Keep yourself from idols because Jesus has defeated them. John says here, the evil one has been defeated. On the cross, Jesus not only paid for your sins and purchased your adoption fees, but he defeated victoriously sin, Satan, death, and hell. And you don't have to fear or be a slave to those things any longer. They may feel so powerful. The enemy's lies may feel so powerful and sin's temptations may feel so powerful. But in victory over these things may feel so impossible. But John says the gospel of Jesus helps us to see that our enemy and our sin has been defeated. And he says, I want you to see those things the same way Jesus does. You must see Satan and sin the same way Jesus does. Do you think Satan, Jesus looks at the enemy and looks at your temptations and thinks, gosh, they are so powerful. He thinks, no, I've crushed those things. They're under my feet. After World War II, the Allied forces gathered up and arrested all the highest-ranking Nazi officials that were responsible for the atrocities of the Holocaust. And they brought them together and put them before an international trial called the Nuremberg Trials. And they brought out all these high-ranking Nazis that were responsible for so much evil and injustice and oppression. And they put them all in in, in their place in the courtroom. And you just were able to look at them And these men that were once so powerful and so feared all over the world, once exercised so much might and and torment over those they oppressed, here they were in their little coats and ties on trial for their life. They were crying, their faces in their palms. They had been beaten. And when their power was stripped away, they were exposed for what they were, weak and cowardly, disarmed, and shameful. And the watching world saw these photos of these men. And they said, pathetic. Nothing to be afraid of any longer. This is what has happened to sin and Satan on the cross. I know that your temptations feel so impossible to overcome. I know how easy it is to believe the lies of the enemy that cause so much shame. And you may question if you can ever be free from the bondage of sin, but let me ask you this. Is the gospel true? Is the gospel true? Because if it is, you must start looking at your sin and your enemy the same way Jesus does, as pathetic losers who have been stripped of their power because he defeated them on the cross. You don't have to listen to the enemy who hurls shame accusations at you. 
And you don't have to entertain the temptations that are all in your heart. You can have the strength to overcome. They are powerless in the presence of Jesus. So call on his name and you will find victory. The gospel assures us that our sin has been defeated. Is the gospel really true? Yes, it is. What difference does it make? Well, it assures us that we have eternal life. It assures us that our prayers are answered. And it assures us that we can really change. What more could you ask for? John says, yes, it's true. And yes, it makes all the difference. You don't have to fear death because the gospel assures you of eternal life. You don't have to wonder if God hears you when you cry out to him. He does. He is your father who adopted you at great cost and he delights in your prayers. And you don't have to be a slave to your sin because he has crushed your enemy and he has silenced your accusers and he has sent his spirit into your life to remind you that you are no longer a slave, but you are free. And if you are free, you are free indeed. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We thank you for the gospel that Jesus, who though he was equal with God the Father, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he'd humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. God, we thank you that John and the apostles and hundreds of other eyewitnesses speak to the truth of this claim that Jesus is Lord and that he has defeated death. And God, we thank you that the water of your baptism and the blood that was poured out from your body speak and testify that you are indeed the Son of God. And God, we thank you that the Spirit has been given into our hearts so that we would cry, Abba, Father. That we would know that you are our Father. And that you have redeemed us, that you've covered our sin, that you've given us eternal life, that you delight in our prayers, and that you have defeated our sin on our behalf. And so God, we thank you for the gospel. We confess that we believe it is true. And we confess that we believe it makes all the difference in our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.